And so that, this whole idea of a redeemer and a substitute begins right at the very beginning of the book of Genesis, and it continues right on through into our present time in how we are to look at ourselves, think of ourselves, and as we look at one another that are Christians, that we realize what God has done for us in Christ. Now, I want us to turn to Isaiah 53 with the entire idea that this is the Old Testament passage that tells us most clearly, most fully, uh, what it means for God to send a substitute for our sin. Now, beginning in Isaiah 52, verse 13, let me pray for us. Father, bless us, bless our time, bless our meal, bless our fellowship, and enable us to see your word and will. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, in Isaiah 52, 13, this section about the servant begins. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. In that which they have not heard, they understand. Who has believed what we have heard, what he has heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off, cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, 
he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, you see the whole concept now woven into this passage that this one who is the servant of the Lord is going to come into the world and he is going to function as our substitute before God in reference to our sin, our guilt, and our shame. Now, this whole idea of a substitutionary atonement, that the Lord Jesus Christ takes your place and my place, and the good news is that he takes the place of any person from any tribe or nation or any status, and he takes their place in reference to their sin, and he transfers to them the righteousness and the glory and the merit that was due him for his perfect life. A substitute, as we come to think about Easter, we think about Good Friday, we think about the days when Christ's body is in that tomb, we need to think that he is my substitute. That's the statement of faith, that I believe that. He died for me. That's my testimony, my confession. Now, the Bible from the time of Adam's first sin had promised, God had promised that a person would come and that he would make right all the corruption that came into the world because of Adam's sin. Now, in, in Genesis 3.15, that we've covered a couple of times in the last number of weeks, we see that God cursed the serpent and promised that the seed of, woman, of the woman would become a person who would crush the serpent's head. And it says at the same time that this one would be bruised on his heel. Now that idea that was we call the seed of the promise, the seed of the idea of a substitutionary atonement was there immediately upon Adam and Eve's first transgression. God did not leave them to perish, but provided a means for their restoration and salvation. But this idea then is like a little kernel and over time, there is more and more things wrapped around this little kernel of truth to expand our knowledge, to expand our appreciation, and to see more and more of the glory of the promise, and especially in reference to the person, the glory of this person who would come. So we see this idea in the story of Abraham, where Abraham is called to sacrifice his son Isaac. Now that's the call of God to him. God is testing Abraham. Sacrifice your only son, the son of the promise. And so is Abraham and Isaac and the servants make their way to the point of Mount Moriah. 
then there's the separation of Abraham and Isaac from the servants, and Isaac says, Daddy, where is the lamb? Where's the lamb? They know there's something wrong here because the substitute, the sacrifice, isn't there. Abraham says the Lord will provide a lamb for himself. And so they get up onto the mountain, the wood's laid out, Isaac is bound, he's placed on that wood as a burnt offering. Isaac pick, or Abraham picks up the knife and is in the process of, of thrusting it into his son when God's voice intervenes and says, now I know you follow me completely. Then it says in verse 22, 13, Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram was caught in the thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him for a burnt offering. Here's what the text says. In the place of his son. The ram is the substitute that took Isaac's place at that point. Now we come into the time nearly 430 years later the time of the Exodus, and in Exodus chapter 12, we see that it's the night of Passover. God's instructing Moses. Moses is instructing the people. What are they to do in reference to this last and final plague? And so the language is that in verse 27, that Moses said, this meal is a Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the sons of Israel in Egypt when he smote the Egyptians but spared our homes. Now lambs for every household were slaughtered. The blood taken from those lambs was placed on the doorpost of the house of the members of the family of faith that the people of Israel, and the angel of death came that night and passed over their houses because of the lamb, the Passover lamb that had been sacrificed and the blood that had been shed. The angel of death did not come into any of those homes, and so these lambs were the Israelites' firstborn substitute in death. Now, in the book of Leviticus, this idea is given more specification. The whole idea of a sacrificial system is being established here. And the sacrifices that are being made daily or generally for the sins of the people, but then on the Day of Atonement that we find in Leviticus 16, there were certain special uh, references and sacrifices that needed to be made. And one of those was a, a ram that was to be called a scapegoat. And as we listen to this, it says in chapter 16, verse 20 through 22, when the priest finishes atoning for the holy place and for the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat and send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities. 
to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness. Notice the language that's here. Again, I'm constantly, as a pastor, dealing with people who don't believe in the word all. They just, the word all, either they don't see all, they skip over the word all, or the word all is just too good a news for them to process. But the language here is all their sin, it says all their transgression, all their iniquity. If it's all gone, how much is left? All right. Now, if the Lord's promised to take away how much of your sin through Christ, then how much is left? So why do you feel guilty? <laughs> I've always had people come and I say, you know, People said, you've got a problem, John. You don't feel guilty about much, do you? I says, well, not really. I mean, you know, if I've done something, I know what I've done. But I don't run around carrying a load of guilt. No, I don't do that. And neither should you. Neither should any Christian. We've got regrets. I've got huge regrets. I'm sure you have huge regrets. If you don't have huge regrets, check in at Milledgeville because that's the place for you. You're delusional. Uh, so... We're told here what God is doing in these sacrifices. Now, this was the good news. Now, when people hear the good news and biblical writers are trying to broadcast the good news, then they speak of it, they preach about it, they write about it. And that's what you find for the rest of the whole of the Old Testament. Constantly, people are talking about this good news. And so you find it in something like Psalm 103 where the Lord tells us in verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. That's pretty clear. That's a long way. In fact, it never comes back together. It just keeps on going. Uh, maybe mine goes east and yours goes west. Maybe part of mine goes east and part of mine goes west. I don't know. But the point is, it doesn't ever return to me. We've got to have that kind of a concept. This is good news, and the good news by the Isaiah, the, or, uh, the psalmist here, David, he's trying to figure a way to communicate it. He's trying to be expressive. He's trying to illuminate the idea. He's trying to put it into your mind and say, I've never heard of that as far as the east is from the west. If I think about it, wow, that's exciting. That's good news. Well, you come to Isaiah. Now, Isaiah is getting ready to tell the people in his uh, prophecy, they have seriously sinned. And God is going to seriously deal with the, the temporal consequences of their sin. But as he begins his prophecy, this is in the first chapter in the eighth verse, these words that we've all heard come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be what color? White. White as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. I read that, and I think, wow, what a great pastoral verse. You know, if, if, if Isaiah would have just said it one way, used one word metaphor, well, we would have thought, well, that was quaint. Good turn of the words here. He put a good spin on this. But when he repeats it, 
and he amplifies it, he expands it, the idea is that you're going to own it. These things are to dig in deep and stay in deep. And so these are the things that God's promised. In Isaiah 53 that we just read, just goes over and over. He was crushed for our iniquities. He talks about us. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Let me just say this about that. You remember who used to say that all the time? Let me say this about that. Richard Nixon. Remember? He always said that. Let me say this about that. Well, let me say this about that. You know something? You're all too willing to have your sins forgiven. How about being willing to let God forgive someone else that sinned against you? How about that? Now, that's not therapy. You'll get that in therapy. You know, you'd be better off if you just let that go. That's therapy. This is Christianity. And Christianity says, if I am the one who owns God's forgiveness, who am I to hold somebody in account for their sin? That's Christianity. So... We come into the New Testament, and what we find here, what is that thing saying over there? I can't even read it. Oh, we're in good shape. The New Testament gets, again, personally specific. In John chapter 1, verse 29 and verse 36, John initially looks at Jesus. John's standing there with some of his disciples. And he points to Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Now, that might have put some ideas in their mind. I wonder what he means. Well, then you get to the next time and he says it this way. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And all of a sudden, we're seeing this idea of substitution that's been wrapped around animals is now being focused on a certain individual. And this individual is the person of Jesus. And this is the direct identity of the substitutionary lamb that bears a person's sins is the person of Jesus. Well, we come to something like 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also died for sins once. The just for the unjust. So that he might bring us to God. Having been put to death in the flesh. But made alive in the spirit. Well. I'm pretty clear about who the unjust is. I mean I've got that. I think maybe I'll get a vanity tag for one of my cars, and I'll put unjust on it. (laughs) We could all wear that one, couldn't we? We're not. But Christ the just one is my substitute. Substitutionary atonement. What does it mean, atonement? I was unjust. And now because of what Christ has done, I am just. 
That's atonement. There it is. Unjust to just in and through the person of Jesus Christ. Again, I'm constantly dealing with people. Um, A really schmaltzy song came out somewhere. I want to say it must have been in the late 60s, early 70s. I even heard this sung as a solo in church. I hope not here, but I heard it. Precious memories, how they linger. Oh, my lands. Oh. Well, but the problem is most of you all have precious memories of your offenses and your sins. And if you don't have those precious memories, you certainly are carrying around precious memories of other people's sins and offenses against you. Ain't too precious if you you get right down to it. Uh, The idea here is God's dealing with you. Now listen to what Hebrews says in chapter 9. You have the Old Testament system. You've got the New Testament system. You've got substitutionary atonement in the Old Testament. You've got substitutionary atonement in the New Testament. For if the blood of goats and bulls in the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of their flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, now listen, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Later on it says, where there is such cleansing, there is no conscience, there is no remembrance of former sins. This is the idea. The substitutionary atonement is to set you free right now in whom the Lord is made free in this way, is free indeed. That, that, that's the language that we see here. Um, Colossians chapter 1 says it this way, Although you were formerly alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him, holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. How did this happen? Christ, our substitute, atoned for and cleansed us of our sin to make us totally acceptable to God. Now, we look at this and we say, there's some information, how is it made personal? Well, how does a person participate in the substitutionary atonement of Christ? So that it's not merely knowledge, but becomes personal reality. Well, the first thing that we have to do is have some concept of the nature of our sin and that Christ has come as a historical person. Our historical reality that I'm a sinner, the history that Christ came And the key thing that we know about Christ when he came, he came to die. That Christ died. Now the second thing that we need to do is have some kind of a theological understanding of what that means. And so in Romans 8.3 it says, God sent forth his son 
and sent him in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, and he condemned sin in the flesh. Now, if you break this down, theology tells us God sent his son. That's very important. This whole substitutionary atonement is God the Father's loving idea for your greatest need. God sent forth his own son. He sent him just like you, just like me, in a body, sinful flesh. But he didn't send him for any other reason except to deal with the issue of sin. And in Jesus' flesh, sin was condemned. That's the language of theology of a substitutionary atonement. Christ died for me, or Christ died for any and everyone who will put their faith in him. Now, there is then our own personal need of having a faith union with Jesus Christ as our Savior. It begins with historical fact, it begins with the divine theological interpretation, and it moves to the personal ownership in which we own what God has accomplished in Christ, and we call that salvation. Now, the Bible uses lots of words. We're called to trust. We're called to have faith. We're called to believe. We're called to receive. We trust the truth. We trust God. We have faith in God. We believe what Jesus accomplished in Jesus' gospel message, and then we receive it. We receive it. All of these words basically have the same idea. Your involvement is the action of appropriation of all that Christ has done by a simple trust and faith in this. Now, the result of it is, well, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just think of it. You don't need to beat up on yourself because nobody in the divine cabinet is beating up on you. So give yourself a break. Don't be so hard on yourself. No condemnation those who are in Christ Jesus. Having been justified with, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. When we think of God... Uh, you know, I like when the kids come home. My number one son lives in Savannah, and he shows up with regularity. And he just bops in, and he flops down. that right? that the way you want it? He just bops in and flops down. He feels like he what? Owns the place. That's right. That's the way we should be. We're in. And we should live that way. We have peace with God. There is then divinely given to us these gifts for us who believe in Jesus. What does the substitution mean? It means that God the Father gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives us the gift of water baptism because some of us are pretty thick. So he puts the actual water on us. It's the idea of substitution. See Aaron's hands confessing the sins on the goat? 
See God the Father confessing your righteousness by putting the water on you and saying you're cleansed. Your guilt and sin is removed, takes it away. Baptism is personal resurrection and the reception of the Holy Spirit. In place of our sin are great gifts given. That's what we find in substitution. We were outside the family, now we're adopted into the family of God. We still are. I, have, I think I told you about my friend one time. We were working on the roof at the church in Milledgeville, and he was cutting some uh, vinyl siding, and he cut the piece, and I, I'd just gotten on the roof. He'd been up there for hours cutting this stuff. Tim cut it. He started to hand it, and I looked at it, and I says, Tim, that piece is too long. He threw it down. He said, if you can do it any better, you can just do it yourself. Well, the poor soul that was putting the vinyl siding picked it up, and he put it over there where it was supposed to go, and it was about that much too long. Tim said it this way. I guess we're just a bunch of jerks. That's good thinking. <laughs> That's good thinking. I'm just a jerk, but I'm being sanctified. Okay? I'm being sanctified. Nothing much has changed, by the way. Most of you all know that. And then there's the ultimate reality. Um, what happens? God just comes and says, it's time to punch out, and he takes us home. And everything that God's ever done is done to its fullness, and we're glorified. These are the gifts that come. It's all a substitute. We don't get what we're supposed to get. We get what God wants to give us, and it's great. And we need to believe, we need to have faith, we need to trust, and we need to receive it. And when we do... The whole idea that, that Moses used in writing the first five books of the Bible were this, that you would have a worldview, that you would look at yourself properly before God, before men, and you would get on with your life in a way that would bring him glory, and you would shine like lights in a dark world. Let's pray. Father, bless us and keep us. Help us to see these things as we move towards Good Friday and as we think of Easter Sunday. What have you done? It's beyond all that we could think or hope or ask. It's all ours because you have given us Christ and you have given us your spirit. We believe that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him would not perish but rather have eternal life. Bless us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.